scripture and open with me to Genesis chapter 15. As your, as your pastor, I'll tell you that uh, chapter 15 is, is thick and uh, rich, and I'm struggling on how many weeks to spend in it. <laughs> I keep updating poor dear uh, Mark, uh, who organizes the music, and uh, telling him, well, we're going to take all of chapter 15. Well, we're only going to take six chapters. And we might actually take another third week, so I want to prepare you in advance. Uh, a man named Patrick Smith, is, who is a commercial airline pilot, uh, wrote about turbulence. He flies Boeing, those big ones, Boeing 757s, 767s. And he explains that uh, for many, if not most, turbulence is the greatest fear in flying. It's when you're up there, you know, tens of thousands of feet with nothing below you, and this tube that is miraculously flying in the, in the air begins to shake back and forth. And he sends, says, for all intents and purposes, a plane cannot be flipped upside down, thrown into a tailspin, and the wings are never going to break off because even if there is an amazing amount of wind or an air pocket, he writes, the conditions might be annoying and uncomfortable, but the plane is not going down. Turbulence is an aggravated nuisance, he writes, but it's also, for lack of a better term, normal in airline flight. Turbulence, uh, when a plane changes altitude because of turbulence, it's a convenience issue. It's not a safety issue. Turbulence seems to be dangerous to us, but from the perspective of the pilot, turbulence is almost nothing. That's insightful as we begin to think about what we're afraid of. Many times we're overcome with fear in this life, aren't we? Financial fears, health fears, safety fears, relational fears, end-of-life fears. All legitimate fears from our perspective. All things that we can kind of get white-knuckled about, can't we? Like we are on the plane when that turbulence starts. But what God wants us to know is, just like the pilot with turbulence, these fears are not as serious as we might think. They are mere blips, if you will. Because as schmaltzy as this will sound, and it will sound schmaltzy, God is our pilot. We need to know that God is has got us. We need to learn to trust God alone. And that leads us into our what we're going to be reading about today in these first six verses of chapter 15. It's all about some of Abraham's fears. So look with me at verse 1. God's word says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, will, and he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven, the number of stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. God knows your heart. I think that's one of the first things you recognize in the first verse of chapter 15. He knows our fears. He knows our hearts. They're all laid bare to him. God is not replying to a cry of fear in Abram. Did you notice that? It's not that Abraham cried out to him. God spoke to him. God simply looks into Abram's heart and sees his fears. That should alone comfort us. That God knows our deepest fears. He knows you. Luke 12, when Jesus likened this to God knowing every hair on your head. That's how intimately and comprehensively he knows you, and he knows your fears. And when you're afraid, he draws close to you, just as he does Abram here. Yahweh mercifully and lovingly comes to Abram in a vision and begins to one by one address his fears. And the first fear we see here God confronting is the fear of man. The fear of man. We see this in God's first words to him. Fear not, I am your shield, right? That's the first words that God says to Abram. I am your shield. Why would he say something like that? What possibly could Abram be fearing at this time? Well, he's just returned from defeating Kedileomer's army up in Damascus, hasn't he? And he comes back down and he has some time to think about it. What would you be thinking about? Uh, They could come back. I've made a serious enemy of a pretty substantial force. They could just gather their forces and march right back down here. He has not only defeated them, but he's plundered them. He's taken their possessions. And I'm pretty sure that he's embarrassed them. There's 318 guys who defeat an army. That's embarrassing. Pride's at stake here. And he's beginning to think about this and mull this over. He had made an enemy of some pretty powerful Mesopotamian kings, and there's a real possibility that they'd come back. And Yahweh looks down into his heart and sees this fear. And he says, Abram, before he even speaks, Abram, fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I've got you. You're okay. 
And God is teaching Abram and us that God to, to really know that God will protect us. God's protection alone. Lori Anderson, a missionary to the head-shrinking Kandoshi Chapra Indians of Peru, tells of an experience she had when she went to the water's edge one day to have her daily uh, quiet time, Bible study and prayer. After reading some scripture, she closed her eyes to pray. And as she prayed, an anaconda suddenly and viciously attacked her and coiled its, its, its body around her and began to squeeze and, and was biting her repeatedly. She was doing her best to fend off this, this snake when all of a sudden it loosened its grip and, and slithered away. While Lori was being treated, a witch doctor from a nearby village came running into the room and stared at her. The witch doctor couldn't believe his eyes, her eyes, that she had survived. And she told Lori that she had chanted a curse on her for her to die. And that Lori looked up at this witch doctor and said, I'm certain I would be dead if it were not for the protection of God. God actually physically protects you. It actually, physically, he actually physically protects you. This is what we see in Scripture again and again. I think of uh, the beginning of Job, the first chapter of Job. If you know that, you, you know that you know, there's this grand um, scene in heaven when Satan and his, his angels come in and complain that Job loves God. And God says, go ahead, you can, you can test my faithful Job. And it's very interesting what, God, what uh, Satan says to God, isn't it? In verse 10, he says, Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all he has on every side? In, in essence, very basically, Satan is saying, I can't do anything. You're protecting him. Think of all the descriptors in the Psalms that are used to describe God's protection. Shield, fortified stronghold, high tower, rock, fortress, refuge, shelter, hiding place, shade, shepherd. Each of those has its own connotation, doesn't it? Has its own understanding of, of a different aspect of God's protection. And that's what he's telling Abram here. Don't fear the Mesopotamian armies. I am your shield. I will protect you. I think for some of us, we have to actually expand the category in our Christianity of God actually protecting us. Of the protection of God. It doesn't mean you'll never have difficulties, people. It doesn't mean that you will never face difficulties physically 
you know, you're not going to be Superman with bullets bouncing off of you. But as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, we're afflicted on every side, but not crushed. We're, we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're never forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Jesus said it another way, and, and I think it's beautiful that someone here prayed this, this very verse this today. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I've got you. You're protected. I am your shield. Trust in God's protection alone. That's what he's teaching Abram. And that's what he wants to teach us. Just right at the beginning of God's word here. But I think there's another fear that that God wants to get at here. The fear of man. I'm sorry, the fear, the financial fear. God looked into Abram's heart and saw that he was afraid that he might have made a mistake in giving away all that plunder. Do you remember in the previous chapter, he comes back after defeating Kedilomer's army and, and King, Sodom, King of Sodom says, you know, um, uh, give me the people and you keep all the plunder and Abram will have none of it, right? He says, nope, I'm not going to keep anything. This is all God's. And I think time and marinating on that decision has given him some misgivings. In Sunday school today, uh, Ed challenged us with, uh, we're learning about um, stewardship. And he challenged us. He said, what if this year you had a windfall of $20,000? An uncle you didn't know died. And all of a sudden, a check arrives and there's $20,000. What would you do with it? We had a little discussion about that. What Abram had done is he gave it all away. He just took it, signed it over, and gave it away. wonder if you did that. And a week later, three weeks later, three months later, some things come up and you go, oh, shouldn't have been so quick with that signing over. I think that's what's going on here with Abram. Because look down at what Jesus, uh, what uh, God says to him here. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Fear not. I am your reward. In other words, he's encouraging Abram and us to find our total and complete satisfaction in God alone. I am your reward. We, all, we often ask, you know, how could Abram be fearful financially? I mean, we, we've learned over and over these past uh, several months that how wealthy Abram is, right? He was, came from Ur when he was wealthy, and Haran he was wealthy. He came down, he went to Egypt and, and, and fell off the wagon there, but he came back with more. I mean, he, he was very wealthy. How could Abram have financial woes being a very wealthy person? But this is the great deception of money, isn't it? This is one of the great deceptions of money. The wealthiest man in America who has ever lived, John Rockefeller, replied when asked how much money was enough, just a little bit more. 
the wealthiest man that had ever, ever lived in America. Just a little bit more. One of the great alluring deceptions that wealth offers is it promises so much, but delivers so little. Money promises everything and delivers almost nothing on that promise. It promises self-worth. It promises life security. It promises soul satisfaction, doesn't it? That's what it promises. You will be satisfied. I write uh, discussion guides for a ministry called Men's Golf Fellowship. It's an outreach to uh, highly successful men in country clubs around the nation. And the idea behind this ministry is to bring these men together at high-end country clubs to come to a breakfast and hear a well-known, highly successful either politician or businessman or sports legend talk about their success. And, and, and the hook or the, or the twist there is, is that this highly successful speaker is a born-again Christian. And these men come, and they hear about their success, which is very intriguing. But they're asked to weave in their faith. How does their faith, how did their faith guide them in their, all their success? How did, how did Christ challenge them and sculpt them in their success? And I just finished... Uh, a couple weeks ago, a discussion guide on Dave uh, Wanstat. He was, uh, some of you might know him, he was a very successful coach, both in college and then for the Chicago Bears and the Miami Dolphins. And his story is, is not unique at all. This is what I've heard over and over again as I've listened to these, these men. They, they, they come to a point where they ask the question, is this all there is? And, and Dave's this all there is was he was uh, an assistant coach under Jimmy Johnson at Miami University, and they won the national championship, and they celebrated on Miami Beach all night. And he said, his own admission was, listen, I had a great relationship with my wife. I had wonderful kids, no trouble there. My career was going great. The job offers were flowing in. I had all the money I needed, and I was sitting watching the sun come up on Miami Beach, and the one question that was in my mind was, is this it? Really? Is this all there is? Money promises everything and delivers almost nothing. Wealth delivers Wealth says it will deliver complete soul satisfaction. So God reminds Abram and us here, I am your reward. I can only give you that. The satisfaction in life you seek is only found in God. Jonathan Edwards wrote, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Our souls, people, are wired for God. 
That's how God wired us. That deep, abiding, never disappointing soul satisfaction is only and ultimately going to be found in God and God alone. Just what we sang. John Piper has probably written more on this subject than most, starting with his book, Desiring God, and I commend that to you. He says it like this, We were created to orbit God. God is our sun, and we're created to orbit him, to get all we need from him. And he goes on and writes, What would happen if the earth decided it no longer wished to orbit the sun? but launched itself on its own course to seek its life satisfaction from other sources? What if it believed that the voluptuous eroticism of Venus would satisfy its cravings? What if it believed the key to its enjoyment was in wielding the scepter of power through what Jupiter possessed? What if Earth believed that venerating Saturn would really unlock the secret of its soil's wealth-producing, future-securing fertility? What would happen is that the sun-giving life of Earth would die and all of Earth's pregnant hopes of finding satisfaction in Saturn's money, in Venus's sex, and in Jupiter's power would be stillborn. And that's what happens when we start orbiting things other than God. We wither and eventually it leads to death. And that's what we do. That's what our flesh wants. It looks for other things to orbit, doesn't it? What else can I orbit besides God? We truly think that if we order orbit Saturn, if we orbit money, that it will bring satisfaction. And God is saying here, it will not. I am your son. If you orbit anything else, you're going to wither and die. I am your reward. I alone am able to satisfy that deep, deep longing that you're looking for. He says that to Abram here. I am your reward. He's saying that to us today. I think there's a third fear here that God sees in Abram's heart. If you look at verses 2 and 3, Abram cries out to the Lord in response, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I, am, I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And he continued and said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. It is the fear, what is being voiced here is the fear that the promises of God will not come true. It's the fear that the promises of God will not come true. God had promised Abram an heir starting all the way back in chapter 12, verse 2. He he tells him that he's going to have many people to inherit the land of Canaan in 12, verse 7. He repeats this promise in chapter 13, 16, that he says, your offspring will be as numerous as dust. And here we are, 
a decade later after those promises, and they still hadn't come true. Sarai was still barren. Where was the son that was promised? Where's this great nation? Where's all this offspring? My goodness. Nothing. There's nothing after 10 years. See, there's a fleshly principle at work here that we struggle with too. And the principle is this. Promises are pressured by the passage of time. Made it alliteration to make it easy to remember. Promises of God are pressured by the passage of time. And God answers today and says, trust in God's promises alone. That's what he's saying to Abram here, and that's what he's saying to us today. Many see Abram's complaint here as a negative, you know, shaking his fist at God, demanding defiantly, prove yourself to me, God. Bitter or even angry. As if he were saying, you're letting this happen to me. Why? You need to make good on your promises now. When speaking to God like that, we're actually asking God to justify himself, aren't we? God, justify yourself to me. And that's really a position of unbelief. I like how Dale Ralph Davies puts it. He says, unbelief dismisses promises. Only faith debates them with God. Unbelief spits on promises. Only faith struggles with them. And I believe what's going on here is a struggling with God in faith. Abraham is struggling over God's promises, struggling to understand. He wants to know more. You can always know the spirit or heart or motive of a question by how God replies to that, can't you? It's a good principle in Scripture. How does God reply to something? That'll tell you a lot about the motive of something. I think if Abram was, was asking God to justify himself, the answer or how God would speak next would be very different from what we see here. It would not be an explaining, explaining of more. It would be a how dare you test the Lord God. We see that over and over again in the wilderness. That's one of the things that we learn from the wilderness is testing God is not good. Asking God to justify himself to you is not good. You see that beginning in Exodus 17 when they come to the, this place and they're in the wilderness and they're, they're parched, they're thirsty, and they, they go to Moses and they said, listen, if this God is, is real, have him give us some water. In other words, they were saying, if God is really with us, and that's what it says in the text, actually, if God is really with us, help us. God, justify yourself right now. And Moses tells them, be careful. You're testing God here. That's a dangerous place to be at. The dangerous way to approach God, to ask the Lord God Almighty who created everything, by the power of his word, you justify yourself to me. He says, that's a really dangerous place. Be careful. 
But here we see the spirit of Abraham's question in God's response. It was asked in faith. Abram was struggling to understand this promise. It's been a decade. He wants to believe. Remember that centurion who said to Jesus, I I believe, help my unbelief. This is kind of where Abram is right there. Help my unbelief here. Give me something, God. He was struggling with God's promises, and so Yahweh gives him something to hold on to. Do you see what he gives Abram to hold on to? The stars. Isn't that cool? He gives him the stars. He leads him outside, and he has him look up at the stars, and he says, so shall your offspring be. We serve an amazingly merciful God. God gives Abram something to look at to remember his promise. Every time he looked up, he would remember the promise of a people. A people. Every time he herded his sheep in late at night, he would remember God's promise of a son. Every time he was out by the fire at night and glance up, he would remember a son. Over the long years, under the stars, the promise would always be before him. The stars, a son. God understands that between promise and fulfillment, that pressure puts pressure on our faith. He understands that. God gave Abram something to remind him to trust God's promise alone. And we face that pressure too, don't we? God, it's been a long time since you said you were coming back. It's been a long time. It's not just been generations. It's not only been centuries. It's been millennia. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since, since the disciples sat there and, and watched Jesus be taken up into heaven and then the angels told them the same way he left, he's going to return. And that time puts pressure on that promise, doesn't it? Right, is he really going to come back? You know, if it was 10 years, okay. If it was 100 years, okay, I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. But two, over 2,000 years? Maybe he's not coming back. Maybe we just say that and we don't really believe it. You know, Peter addresses this in his second letter in the third chapter when he says, in the end times, scoffers will come and they will say, where is this promised coming? You know, many generations have gone by. Where is this promise coming? And some of those scoffers will be in the church. Where is this promise coming? Is it really true? And if that is a struggle for you, I want to encourage you. I want God to encourage you. God gave us something to look at. He didn't give us the stars. Do you know what he gave, at, gave us to look at 
so that we would remember that promise. The Lord's Supper. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He gave us the Lord's Supper. He said, do this in remembrance of me until I return. 1 Corinthians 11. He gave us something to look at because he knows that time pressures this faith we have in his promises. The bread and the wine. He gave us a visual for the long wait. He knew it was going to be a long wait. When we come on Sunday and we see that bread and that juice, I want us to remember the promise of him coming back. When you come on Sunday and you see that that the bread is there and the juice is there, I want you to remember his promise that as he went, he will come back. When you break off a piece of that bread, I want you to remember that Christ substituted himself and took the punishment for our sin. That sin demands a payment of death, and someone has to pay that price. It'll either be Jesus, or it'll be you. If you're a Christian sitting here today, you need to be reminded that your sin is paid in full. When you come and you see the bread and the juice, be reminded of the Son's promise of forgiveness. Jesus said in the upper room, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When you hold that little teeny symbolic cup filled with reddish liquid, remember that you're forgiven. That Jesus absorbed all of your sin on the cross. And there's all the wrath was poured out on him. And there's nothing left for you. We need reminding of that because we hold on to our sin, don't we? God can't forgive me for this. Yes, he can and has and does. When we see the elements, we are reminded of the promise that the Son lives. Jesus rose from the dead after three days, and that is actually what guarantees our salvation. As Paul put it, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. We're saved by a living Savior. And we will live because he does. And that is all possible because we're saved, not by what you do or I do, but by faith alone. And that's the last point. We're saved by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. That's what we see in verse 6, what he's reminding us of in this precious, precious verse. (laughs) And he believed, and Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is a precious verse. This is the first time in Scripture that we are overtly told that salvation 
that righteousness before God is a free gift. It's given by faith alone. James Boyce calls this scripture the salvation's hinge. One of our greatest fears is that we're not good enough, isn't it? Is one of our greatest fears, I'm not good enough. You know, when I ask people about Christ and, and, or how they get to heaven, nine times out of ten, it's if I'm good enough. If my good outweighs my bad. If I can just tip those scales by a micron, I'm in. I can still have my life, but if I'm philanthropic enough, or go to church on Christmas and Easter, or, you know, pray to this God, I can get in. Even in discussions with Christians, many times I hear, I try to do good. Now, on one hand, that is commendable. We should try to do good. Obedience is important. It's how we show our love for Christ. We should want to obey God. And it's a fruit of authentic regeneration. But on the other hand, I always wonder, in the back of my mind, when I hear Christians say that, do they get it? Do they get that it's by faith alone? Or, or do they still have a foot on the scale? I've told several, several of you recently that this is the first time I've preached or taught through Genesis and, the, and specifically uh, the life of Abraham. And I've been struck most powerfully, one of the most powerful things that struck me, is Abraham's stumblings. Have you been struck by that as we're going through this? Abraham is stumbling a lot. I mean, for a person who is lifted so high in the New Testament, as Abraham was faithful, it's just kind of surprising me that he's stumbling so much. Yeah, he's stumbling forward, but he's stumbling a lot. Lying and selling his wife in Egypt... Fears here continue in our next chapter when he, with Hagar, will continue in chapter 20 when he, he lies about his wife again. I think what God's word is showing us through Abraham is that he wasn't good enough. <laughs> he, he wasn't. He isn't righteous enough. I think that's one of the things that God is, is, is showing me about Abraham. And that's the reason for this verse. Salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. No one is righteous enough to earn salvation. That righteous has to be credited to you. It has to be given to you. It has to be a gift. Because we all stumble. Imagine if you're pitted in a one-on-one spiritual marathon against Jesus Christ. 
Just you and Jesus at the starting line. The gun goes off and Jesus bolts out ahead of you with blazing speed. Jesus runs the race with perfection. He never gets lost. He never loses focus. He never takes a bad stride. So with much fanfare and acclaim, he finishes the entire marathon in record time. Finally, in this spiritual marathon, you struggle across the finish line about five years later. You lost your focus a bunch of times and got tangled in some bushes. You frequently tripped over your own shoelaces and fell in the mud. Several times you even got lost, lost interest in the race and stopped running. But you finished. As you gasp and and collapse at the finish line, you look up and see Jesus is already standing on the gold medal podium. He has a gold medal around his neck while you feel defeated and ashamed. As you start to slink off away, Jesus calls your name and motions you to come up and join him on the winner's platform. So you sheepishly join Jesus on the gold medal podium. Platform. He puts his arm around your shoulder and says, Look, I know all about your race. It wasn't pretty, but you were forgiven. And just so you know, while I was racing ahead of you, I was also with you. Then he takes his gold medal and he slips it over your head while it stays on his head too. And the reporters start to take the pictures, your picture with Jesus. Then it hits you. You're being treated as if you ran Jesus' race. You're receiving honor based on his performance. That's salvation by faith alone. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, only you can change us through these words. Do your work on our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.